Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hi everyone and welcome to the Trainer Talks and Tales podcast. You're joined by your co-hosts Tess and Daisy. Hi Tess. Now this week is actually a little bit different as we are recording together, but we're not actually together. Tess is currently living her best life at both of our favourite places in Australia, Minjarabar on Stradbrook Island in Queensland. So Tess, I'm sure your week has been amazing, but please tell us all about your first week of holidays and do you have any recommendations for us? It's been really nice. Thank you, Daisy. Uh, I will admit it has taken a couple of days for me to unwind. So my recommendation is actually from me this week. Uh, It's taken a bit of time for me to just switch off. I've been dreaming about work, uh, been filling out reports on the beach and just stressing a little bit about things I'm falling behind on. And I reflected a bit today and I caught myself, this is my whole day. This is my time to switch off. So basically it's a message from me to our listeners to say, if you have time off, if you have a weekend, a holiday, make sure you switch off. Don't be Tess. (laughs) Uh, try and tell yourself it's better that you actually come back refreshed because it will be better for you, your colleagues, and ultimately your animals too, if you're in a better mindset. So relax a little bit if you have time off. I think that's such a good reminder to just be aware of that work life balance as well. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, how about you? How's your week? Any recommendations? This week is good. It's also not too long until I'm on holidays as well, which is exciting. Um, But I do definitely have a recommendation for you all. And it's the ABMA podcast that's called Animal Behaviour Conversations. And every week, Shane, the host, is joined by someone different in the field. And they actually chat all things training, concepts and terminology. Now, I'm going to particularly recommend the most recent one because I was lucky enough to actually be Shane's guest We chatted all things SDs or Qs, so definitely go have a listen and let me know what you think. And we have been talking about getting Shane on our podcast soon too, which will be really exciting. But today we're actually chatting with a friend, Dan Rumsey. Now, Dan has just finished up at Australia Zoo, and we actually chatted about a whole lot of different things this episode. So Tess and I hope you enjoy. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We're excited for this conversation, but as always, you've probably heard in our other episodes, we do like to start the chat with a fast five. So these are five questions that aren't necessarily animal related, but just to get you thinking and answering quickly. Do you mind if we jump straight into that? Go for it. Cool. Nervous. You should be. All right. Number one, favorite reptile? Komodo dragon. Beer or wine? Beer every single day of the week. Music over Instagram photo, yes or no? Old music, yes. New music, no. Otherwise, Instagram. <laughs> Blondes or brunette? Have to say blonde these days. Salad or vegetables? Salad. Definitely salad. Nice. Good job. We like doing that as a bit of an icebreaker. So, Dan, I briefly overlapped with you whilst at Australia Zoo. 
However, I know your career with animals goes way beyond just the one facility. So I was wondering if you could give the listeners a bit of an insight into your career, how you got there and where you're at now. Yeah, thanks, Daisy. It feels like forever ago now. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I started as a volunteer, a reptile volunteer at Taronga in Sydney, which is obviously a very famous institution. And that was a great place to start and really just kind of learn a bit about what zookeeping is all about. Uh, and then I started working at Symbio Wildlife Park um, as a reptile keeper, of course. And then uh, I moved up to Australia Zoo again as a reptile keeper. Uh, and then I went down to uh, Australian Reptile Park as a head reptile keeper. And then I've just been back at Australia Zoo as, I guess, chief animal care officer, but mainly overseeing, I guess, a mammals curatorial type role is what I've been doing for the last 18 months, which I've just finished up on. Wow. Well, that's a lot of uh, experience you've had and a lot of animals that you've worked with, uh, quite an array, really. Um, primarily reptiles. Hey! <laughs> um, a bird just went onto Dan's shoulder. I realise you will not be able to realise that in the podcast, but anyway. Um, what is your favourite species and why? Probably Komodo dragons. They're a very special reptile. I think, I think most reptile keepers will probably give the same answer if they've had the opportunity to work with Komodo dragons, but um, they've definitely been a very big part of I guess my career and I was very fortunate this year for my 35th birthday I don't like saying that but 35th birthday I went over to Komodo Island with a bunch of my nearest and dearest my partner and a lot of my close friends and got to see Komodo dragons in the wild and it was just an incredible experience and it really ticked off something that was super special to me and um, especially at the reptile park we had a couple of beautiful lizards um, Kraken and Daenerys and they were just like they're still very close to my heart and to be able to go through the process of they're breeding them and I guess seeing them from when they were small to adult size was just really special. So yeah, I'm going to say Komodo dragons, but a close second would be any of the giant tortoise species, so Galapagos or Aldabrans. Very cool. Well, you have a, definitely a very impressive resume, but you did mention about working at ARP, which is the Australian Reptile Park, where I'm understanding that there's a fairly comprehensive venomous snake milking program. For two non-reptile people and complete novices, are you able to explain what that is and I guess the importance of that program too? Yeah, and it's something pretty unique, obviously, to the Reptile Park. And the Reptile Park does a lot of things that are pretty incredible if they're not the profit organisation, Aussie Ark, but also too through the anti-venom program. So on average, um, maybe up to 100 people are bitten by venomous snakes every year in Australia. Uh, and really only one to two deaths recorded. So that's a really low amount if you compare that to something like India or Sri Lanka, where literally thousands of people are killed annually by snake bite. It's not really the case here in Australia because we do have a pretty good record. Um, we know the first aid treatment, which is obviously the most important thing, but also too, we've got access to wonderful hospitals right around the country. Um, but thirdly, you've got the best anti-venom produced probably in the world and the most efficient anti-venom. And um, the Reptile Park for a very long time has played a vital or critical role in that in the sense that they extract venom from the five main groups of Australian toxic snakes for the production of anti-venom, which then is distributed through hospitals and saved lives. And I've literally seen, you know, unfortunately had to see mates that have needed the anti-venom because they have been bitten by venomous snakes. So I've kind of seen it firsthand how, how vital that is. But snake bite's not a really medically significant issue in Australia because of those three reasons I mentioned before. And, you know, because of the work that the Reptile Park do and all the keepers um, that have gone before and that are there now, um, and they continue to do. It's very unique in the, I guess, zookeeping world, but, you know, saving, contributing to saving lives is something pretty special. But not only do you get your fix of working with the reptiles that you're so passionate about, but also, too, 
um, being involved in such a vital program. And for you, like, how does it feel working, I guess, so closely with such dangerous animals, but also being a part of something so important too? Yeah, it's definitely something that I, I reflect on and I think was something I'm very proud of, to even to be involved and, and, and to work with the keepers that I work with, but also too, like, it's just, you know, you think that the guys, you do risk your life, r- literally, because if you are bitten, you can still have the same adverse reactions as anybody else. You're not immune to snake venom just because you work with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you do get a great information for how these snakes behave. And if you ask any of the guys that have worked in the venom rooms or worked around snakes, like we try and be as relaxed and calm as possible and we hope the snake will do the same. But at the end of the day, uh, you want to make sure you're milking the snake and getting the highest possible yield from that individual so it is quite efficient. And then from there, it can be turned into the life-saving antivenom that, again, is distributed around to hospitals throughout the country. So it's a very unique program. And whilst I'm not at the reptile park anymore, um, I'm still very, very fond of the place and got many, many friends there and people that I work with are still milking snakes probably today. It's definitely a very important program that they've developed there. Yeah, definitely. And as I said, they've been doing it for a very, very long time and they'll continue to do it. And um, it's great because I think if we keep snake bite numbers of deaths down in Australia, it actually changed people's perception a little bit. Like I know it's changed a lot since I was a kid. And you definitely hear when I was a kid, you talk about snakes and it's always that, oh, the only good snake's a dead snake. I, you tend to hear that a lot less now. And I think it is because we, we don't really hear about too many people dying. So I think that kind of they just like they're not that bad and as long as you give them their space um they're happy to do the same and i think that's the key with snakes is leave them alone and they'll always leave you alone because at the end of the day you're a big scary predator to a snake and they just want to avoid you at all possible chances and i think that comes alongside the this new generation that have such a more thorough understanding of wildlife and the role that they play in our ecosystems too definitely definitely and that started you know when it's changed and there's so much more information out there and you can see like it's i I love seeing the videos that people report of snakes feeding or just their general behavior in the wild so people are observing snakes in a safe way and really appreciating some of the cool things that they they do every single day yeah absolutely it's important that those opinions are changing and the work that you guys have done has been a big part of that so that's great um, okay, well, heading into a couple more questions. Uh, obviously, you've been in the industry for a while and you've worked across numerous facilities. Do you have any tips or tricks for listeners that might still be wanting to get into this industry? Because as we all know, it's a pretty tricky one to get into. Yeah, and I guess if you're going to be, if you, now's the time because there's obviously so many more jobs available now than what I can remember when I was first start, when I was first coming through. Um a good attitude goes a very, very long way. Um, you, you've got to be willing to learn and I guess go above and beyond and all those kind of things. So um, I think having a good attitude is something that I really appreciate. Like you want to have a, obviously a keen interest in animals and obviously the observational skills will come along the way, but just turning up and wanting to be there and showing that you're passionate and showing that you're willing to go above and beyond to, I guess, that get that first zookeeping job or, or even as a volunteer, like you should treat every volunteer day um, as a job trial. And I think people forget that. And like I remember as a volunteer how hard it was. Like you would work, um, I don't want to swear, but you would work your butt off from, <laughs> from the moment the zoo would open till the moment that they, they were escorting you out to get you out of there. And that's the days that I remember as a volunteer. Um, and if you did that, you literally, you'll find your way into a job. So 
people shouldn't give up, but people should see that if you really want it, you will, I guess, you know, take on extra responsibility, be willing to learn and take feedback as well. I think that's something that I've noticed has changed a lot lately in the last few years. And I'm not trying to be too critical of anyone or anything like that, but that people don't like feedback anymore. Like how do you expose to improve if you don't if you don't listen to people that have been doing it for, you know, over a decade? Like yeah. be willing to take on that and really take on board people that have been there, done it, seen it, um, and have been around these animals that you aspire to work with for decades potentially. Absolutely. I agree. I think uh, it's important to know that any information or any feedback that someone's giving you is not a personal attack. It's just trying to improve you and make sure that you're going to work with that animal better or do better in that role. So yeah, keeping an open mind with feedback is a, is a really great tip. That's for sure. In the day, we're allowed to make mistakes. No one is imperfect like you're allowed to make mistakes just don't keep making the same mistake again and again and again <laughs> because then you are a problem <laughs> and then and we'll, be, we'll be after you then but you know be willing to learn along the way and, and grab onto those really good mentors that's probably something that i've been very fortunate with in my every zoo i've worked at you know i can name a handful straight away off the top of my head i've had some great mentors you've got to cling to those people and you got to absorb their knowledge and see what they do and aspire to be like them or better. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in terms of uh, study options, would you say that study is important or is volunteering more important to get uh, into this industry? It's a, it's a great question. And I, if I could go back in time, I definitely, I definitely would have. I wish I went to university. Now it's not saying I won't now, only because. Um, Throughout my time in zookeeping, my appreciation for field work and being out in the field has only increased um, more and more and more. Um, so I have probably, whilst I've been able to do all those kind of those things and spent a lot of time in the field, um, a little bit limited without that degree, I think it's something that people should consider. But to get into zookeeping, volunteering and doing your Cert 3, I know they've changed the name of the Cert 3, I think. So I'm not going to – it used to be Captive Animal Studies. I don't know what it's called now. Yeah, Um, I think it's Exhibiting Animals. I I can't remember off the top of my head, but we're actually going to be doing a podcast quite soon about the language change within that and the impact that that's had, which is a really positive one too. So, Yeah, great. And you do that, volunteering. At the end of the day, you don't need a piece of paper to tell you how to work with a Tassie devil. I don't believe that you do. Um, but if you have further aspirations, obviously, to particularly to get into field-based conservation work, I think having that degree definitely benefits you in the long run. But it's really up to people. Like some some people don't want to do that. Some people are very happy just looking after the animals within that, that that's within their care or within their facility. So um, just volunteering, get your Cert three done, and then from that too, you might be able to go through Cert four and head into more management type roles or even teaching, which seems to be teaching within the tape um, kind of curriculum that seem to be quite popular of a lot of people that I know as well so definitely study what you should be studying every day anyway like I whilst I you know I'm not studying at university I try and read about animals every day reptiles mainly okay yeah I think that's a good point you don't have to be enrolled in university to be learning every day which is a really great point now Dan we spoke briefly with Dean last week um, about seeing new roles that have been developing within the industry that is obviously ever evolving. What is some positive change that you've seen within the industry since you've started working with animals? Lunch breaks. <laughs> <laughs> Simpler. 
lunch breaks. I, I, when I started, I did, what was a lunch break? I'd never heard of those things before. I thought you worked hard to finish. Um, but no, I guess in, in ser- seriously, I think that even the change in smaller facilities in heading down and trying to be more engaged and more involved with conservation work. I think um, I look at places like Symbio Wildlife Park and they're involved with a, a number of programs. So, um, and that's really happened in the last 10 years. And that's a really, a real credit to Matt and Kylie, who are the owners down at Symbio. And the, you know, that's just one example I can pull off the top of my head, but definitely being involved with conservation and giving back to the wildlife that we're promoting every day. And we, and, and we do say a lot of the time, you know, they're ambassadors for species in the wild. What are we actually doing for those animals? And if you look at those, let's say like, uh, let's talk about Australia Zoo. Um, they have multiple conservation properties uh, they've got the wildlife hospital which obviously is directly contributing to conservation um, rehabilitating wildlife so you know it's it's i think that's only increasing and that push towards that for me has been something that i've really liked and once upon a time it seemed a little bit exclusive to the government zoos obviously places like perth zoo and melbourne zoo and taronga have been doing engaged with yeah endangered and critically endangered species what seems like forever but it's really nice to see that filtering out into some of the other parks around the country as well. Well, on that, do you think there's anything the industry should be improving on right now? Yeah, if I, and I've, I've probably got um, some pretty strong opinions in this field, and I, I guess it's because I've seen um, I've seen a lot of good friends and a lot of good people leave, um, particularly in recent times. And motivation does seem a lot to be related to financial support and, and, and growth. It's definitely something that the zoo industry needs to work on. Like I think everyone's aware of it, but sometimes we feel like we're butting heads. And you know, I can talk about one conversation where I remember talking to a zoo zoo owner maybe four or five years ago, and he just was complaining about his good staff kept leaving, and he got to hire kids, and they don't know what they're doing. And and I said, yeah, well, start paying the good ones better. And that idea was just so foreign to them because. For so long, they've been they've had people that have been willing to volunteer their time and get the job done. But then you have this, you know, you're watching 10, 15 year keepers just walk out of the industry to go potentially earn another ten or twenty thousand dollars more. And I'm not this is why I'm simplifying things a lot. Um, but you need to keep those people. You need those people sticking around so they can be teaching those those junior keepers that are coming through the ranks and they're learning off the right type of people. So. And it's not every zoo, and I'm not even saying this is somewhere that I've worked because you know I've already I've always been very well financially supported in the institutions that I've been at. But I know that's not always the case, and we're going to keep seeing people leave, and we're going to keep having this high turnover of staff because people. It's it's 2023. The world has changed quite a bit. Things are very expensive these days. So <laughs> making sure within our zoological systems we do have a trajectory for people so they can stay and they can continue to progress and they can have goals they can reach to, whether it's whether it's a financial support through reaching KPIs or whatever, but they need those they need to see that in their progression. So not everyone wants to be a curator, not everyone wants everyone wants to be a general manager, but you still want these people to invest and stay for a long term time. So I guess that's the challenge for um smaller parks and you know, i hope no one gets too offended by this but at the end of the day it needs to happen and if it doesn't happen you will continue to see people leaving because there's so much opportunity out there for multi-skilled people and zookeepers are that in a nutshell they can do anything really because they've learned those skills on the ground so if that's something that 
yeah, I could leave with because I am taking a little bit of a break from the industry at the moment. It would be, you know, make sure we're supporting our staff and make sure they do have potential for growth financially and with their career. Yeah, I think we don't want to keep things for people leave. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's put really well. I think it's a common phrase that we all hear is that we're not in the industry for the money, but at the end of the day, it's a job. We have all got families to support and we definitely need to be recognized for our work and the amount of work that we're doing too. A hundred percent. And it, it, that we've been too guilty of that for too long saying we do it for love. Um, yeah, you still love it, but that's why you go above and beyond. You still still be rewarded for that the work that you're doing every single day so you know I don't, I don't know how to fix the problem like there's not enough government zoo roles to fill it like for everyone to eventually work in and obviously the government system is a little bit different probably to private because of the support but we kind of need to head in that direction like people need to be able to have progression and make sure that they can stay in the industry for a long time and be able to support a thing like a house or a family or whatever or they might want multiple horses. I don't know. Everything's expensive. <laughs> multiple dogs. <laughs> multiple dogs, exactly. Birds flying on your shoulder like me before. So, um, yeah, I think as an industry, that's something that, you know, everyone needs to come together and, and really work on that so people are willing to stay for a long time and can see that kind of light at the end of the tunnel that there will be that financial reward for them as well. And I think it's great that you touched on the fact that not everyone wants to progress to be management or leadership roles, curating roles, so for facilities to still touch base with their employees and see what their progression looks like for them, and that might not be financially motivated, but where they can progress within different roles within that facility to still make sure that they feel motivated or motivated and challenged to come to work every day too. Definitely. Absolutely. Like people management is hard. Everyone, like yeah. Anyone that's been in it, it's the hardest role. The animals are easy. It's the people management that's difficult. Not everyone wants to do that, but they still need to have their own, I guess, they just need that chance to go, all right, if I stick it out, um, I will be able to reach those goals and I can hit those KPIs or I will be able to get um, – and it could be something simple too. Like it's even little things like imagine if, you know, you knew once a month you got a full weekend off or something like that. Sometimes it's even small things that can make a massive change, but we really need to open up those conversations. Yeah, I think it's that recognition and feeling appreciated that will definitely encourage people to stick around for that little bit longer. Now, Dan, we did get a few questions from our social media. So the first question we got is about your favourite species or your favourite category of animals, I guess, so reptiles. What has been your favourite enrichment that you have designed or developed for a reptile or an idea that you've had from them? My favourite enrichment um, for reptiles. So I guess the, the thing that I've noticed a lot recently is a bit of a change. And I think the ultimate enrichment for a reptile in captivity is to try and well, you want to replicate what the animal would experience in terms of its husbandry parameters, what it would experience in the wild. And I feel like because we keep an, keep a snake in a melamine box um, with butcher's paper and a hide and, and a water bowl, we, we, we're chasing our tails. So we're trying to come up with all, of the, all of these ideas to enrich their lives over a week. We need to go past that. And as a reptile keeper, and I'm mainly talking to reptile keepers here, what you should be looking at is a way to kept, set up that animal in a naturalistic setup where it's exposed to the same or trying to mimic the environmental condi conditions that they'll experience in the wild. Um, think of all the environmental parameters that you could put into that microhabitat. And if you do that, what you're going to see is naturalistic behaviours from that reptile. And it's, it's something as, even as simple as um, seasonal changes, 
And the only way you learn that is by doing a lot of reading and obviously observing them in the wild and talking to people that have been there and done it. So uh, I feel like sometimes we, we're going down this path of trying to like tick a box that doesn't really do too much. And what I challenge reptile keepers to, and I'm not saying that I've been able to do this because it's something that I'll strive to do and I think every reptile keeper should strive to do is is you're, 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 you've got an animal that's you know where it's found in, in Australia. Let's just talk about native animals for now, native reptiles. You know where it's found, do your research, and then in that microhabitat, as much as you possibly can, you want to replicate what it would experience in the wild to what it would experience, what you can provide in, a, in the captive sense. And if you do that, um, you will see naturalistic behaviours. And there's so many examples of it online. And I feel like, you know, I've seen people like, you know, they think, I've, I've worked with people that think throwing in a handful of leaf litter once a week is all of a sudden enriching and that sna- changed that snake's life. No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't at all. <laughs> and, and if you have on a bit of paper that every Friday morning that you're meant to feed the snake at 10 a.m. or whatever and it gets the same size food, you're not really thinking like a, a reptile keeper and you really need to think outside the box. But probably the enrichment that I, I've liked the most is – encouraging movement in reptiles like if we think of komodo dragons um because i I spent a lot of time working with them we used to take our komodo dragons out into the park and they'd go on what we call enriching walks and i could see the benefit of that not just from their mental stimulation but may but mainly in their physical shape they were very fit lizards and that's because one we didn't overfeed them we typically gorge feed them like they would in the wild who would have thought and then we also got them moving now, in the wild, or go to another species, Parenti, that's Australia's largest monitor lizard. In the wild, they will walk kilometres in a day sometimes. So you think about now, we've then taken this particular species, we've put it in a three-by-three three exhibit um, indoors. How can you possibly replicate what it would do in the wild in, in, inside? So that's what I think is the challenge. So any that encourages movement, particularly for a species like a Parenti or a Komodo dragon, is really good. But yeah, for, for for reptile keeping, um, you want to do the best you can to have that animal behave like it would in the wild. I think that's the ultimate goal, and you can do that with the best husbandry. I was looking at um, I was looking at a video yesterday. It's a page on Instagram for the Natural Hurt Keeper. There's some guys up in um, North North Queensland that run that page, and they've got a species of snake called an Ingram's brown snake, and you know, the way they've set up that exhibit, you know, obviously naturalistic, and basically the animal just behaves exactly like one would out in the wild. To me, that is the ultimate goal in terms of enriching a reptile's life in a captive sense. So I think that should be kind of the target. Um, you know, that I, I was watching another video and I was like, oh, I was a snake cuddling up to a teddy bear. And I was like, well, hang on, we're going in the wrong direction there <laughs> because they're They've been on the planet for 100 million years and in all my life looking at snakes, I've never seen one cuddled up to a teddy bear. So I think we need to go back to replicating wild in your microhabitat. Um, and that is, and, and it is amazing when you do that and you actually start to see those naturalistic behaviours, the same things you would see if you went and watched um, the birds back on my shoulder, <laughs> the same things you would if you went into the wild and observed that animal, all of a sudden, bang, you've got it right in front of you. And the best thing about that too is and all those guests that come and visit the facility or visit the zoo, they will be able to experience that as well because most people aren't going to walk around the bush and hope to bump into a broad-headed snake or a, anything like that. Um, so as a reptile keeper, you've got these animals on display. You want people to see exactly how they behave in the wild. 
Does that make sense? I feel like I went on a bit of a tangent. No, I think that's perfect. And I what I took away from that was mostly it's not about ticking a box. Mm. I think we've all fallen victim to, oh, I should put out some enrichment. Here's a pine cone. You know, you need to absolutely think about what you want and what you um, want to see from that animal. And it's not about ticking a box. It's about seeing those natural behaviours. So I think you answered that perfectly. Yeah. I think it's the why, not the what is a good way of putting that. Okay, well, we have two more. Um, next one. Who is your biggest inspiration and why? Um, I think this cha- I think this changes uh, when you're as you're young to when when you get a bit older. And I'm going to be really honest. I actually take a lot of my inspiration now from a very close circle of my friends. Um, they're all in curatorial reptile type roles. Um, I find some of my mates they're just so switched on, so passionate. And honestly, that's where I get the majority of. I'm not going to name any of them. They know who they are, but. That's probably where I draw a lot of my inspiration from now. And our conversations are just, you know, I learn a lot from my friends and it's really good to surround yourself with those type of people. I would completely agree with you 100%. My Definitely my inspirations are the people I work with every day and my close friends that work in the industry and have great conversations, which is awesome. Now, I know you briefly touched on it earlier a little bit, but what traits do you think set aside a great zookeeper compared to a good zookeeper? I remember talking to a TAFE teacher from New South Wales. Most people from New South Wales would remember Graham Kipps that have been in the industry for a little while. And he said to me, you've got to have, sorry, my bird's chewing on my cord. Um, <laughs> he's a very naughty Konya. It's He's fine. Um, great uh, observation skills, animal knowledge, and being able to communicate, not only with the public, but with the people you work with. And I think those three things are still very important. And you never stop learning. If you are a, if you're a, a zookeeper that loves your animals, you will not stop reading and you will not stop talking to people. And I think just don't ever, don't ever stop because um, my book collection never ceases. I'm going to keep growing it and growing it because there's always more knowledge for me to absorb. There's 14,000 reptile species. Is that right? I think something like that on the planet. There's no one in the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's about well over a thousand in Australia. I think that's about right. Something like that. Um, um, and I want to, hopefully one day know everything about most of them, but that's never going to happen. But I at least set myself that goal. So um, just keep learning and have a good attitude, like we said right at the start, because that that attitude attitude will take you a long way away because those people, those mentors, when they see that, they're the ones, they're going to grab you because they're going to see that potential in you. So I think taking that attitude, good attitude, positive attitude in the work is very important too. I think that's a fantastic way to really wrap up this conversation. Thank you so much for your time today, Dan. It was really interesting. And I think both Tess and I actually learned a fair bit more about reptiles, which is great. If people do want to reach out to you, where is the best place that they can find you? It's probably the best way. I do have an Instagram page at zookeeper underscore Dan. Feel free to message if you if you want advice or anything like that or just want to have a chat but yeah thank you so much guys for having me on i hope i didn't ramble too much and i hope my konya didn't disrupt the chat too much (laughs) no not at all thank you so much we really appreciate it thanks guys well tess that was so awesome to chat to dan and i'm really excited to start conversation about tips and tricks for getting into the industry and we're actually going to continue talking about that in a lot more future episodes too As always, you can reach out to Tess and I on socials at Trainer Talks and Tales. But until then, we will see you next time.